too young to go to Philadelphia for the game, and so one of his uncles had come down from Ohio to babysit, and they watched the game on television. Age five, Bill was still a few years away from helping his father go over film, and still so new to the game that when he was told he was being taken to see William and Mary play, he wondered if William would beat Mary. On that day, in December 1957, Navy stopped a great Army team cold, shutting them out, fourteen to nothing. True, it was a muddy field, but that did not seem to matter very much and perhaps should have helped Army. The cadets gained a total of only 88 yards on the ground and 48 yards in the air. They threw 14 passes and completed six. The next year, in order to keep the Navy defense from packing in against the run, Blake came up with his idea of the lonely end, a receiver stationed some 20 yards from everyone else receiving the signals from the quarterback by, it seemed to opposing teams, mental telepathy. That formation put a great deal more pressure on the defenses, loosened them up significantly, and brought Army a greater measure of success, and Dawkins the Heisman Trophy. But the 1957 game was a stunning victory for Navy. And after the game, Shirley Povich, the famed Washington Post columnist, sought out Erdelatz to congratulate him on a superlative victory. Erdelatz pointed to Steve Belichick and said, He won the game for us two weeks ago. Belichick didn't think he had done anything exceptional, just done his job. And what he had seen was what any good football man would have seen. When the clock was finally winding down, the seconds ticking off, with the Philadelphia team unconscionably slow in getting its plays off, Steve Belichick always in the background whenever there were television cameras around, left his place behind some of the New England players, back around the 50-yard line. Moving quickly, he headed toward the 35, wanting to share this final glorious moment with his son Bill, the coach of New England, about to win his third Super Bowl victory in four years. Bill Belichick himself was puzzled by the slow, almost languid way the Eagles were running their plays, as if they were the ones with the lead, not the Patriots and they wanted to burn the clock. He kept checking the scoreboard, which said 24 to 14, as if perhaps he was the one who had the score wrong. He called his assistants, Romeo Cronell and Eric Mangini, on the headphones to make sure the Patriots did indeed enjoy a 10-point lead. Have I got the score right? he asked, and they assured him he did. Then what the hell are they trying to do? he asked. His assistants didn't know either. The long, slow drive had finally culminated in a Philadelphia score because of a missed defensive coverage on the part of the Patriots. The correct defense, designed to give up a limited number of yards in exchange for more time off the clock, had not been sent in or used, and Philadelphia scored on a 30-yard pass play. Seeing that his players were in the wrong coverage, Belichick had tried desperately to call timeout, but he had been too late, and the Eagles had scored. Belichick had been momentarily furious, mostly at himself, because he demanded perfection first and foremost of himself. But the score had served only to make the game closer. It had not affected the final outcome. Steve Belichick got to his son's side just in time to be soaked by Gatorade in the ritual shower of the victorious. That gave him his first great moment of celebrity, coming at the end of a six-decade career of playing and coaching football and that moment was witnessed by much of the entire nation, live and in color, on national television. 
One could imagine one of those Disneyland commercials, generally accorded the young and instantly famous at moments like these, when a voice would ask, Steve Belichick, you've been coaching and playing for 60 years. Where are you going now that your son has won his third Super Bowl in four years? It was one of the best moments of the entire Super Bowl extravaganza, filled as it is so often with moments of artificial emotion, because this moment was absolutely genuine. Father and son drenched together, emotion finally showing on the face of the son, usually so reticent about showing emotion, as if to do so was to give away some precious bit of control, to fall victim, at least momentarily, to the whims of the modern media trap. Father and son were bonded in this instant by the joy of victory and by the shared experience of a lifetime of coaching, with all its bitter as well as celebratory moments. Steve Belichick was a lifer, viewed by his peers as a coach's coach. He had never made much money and never enjoyed much fame outside the small, hermetically sealed world of coaching. For much of his adulthood, he had lived with the special uncertainty of a coach, a world without guarantees, except for the one that no matter how well things were going at the moment, they would surely turn for the worse. There would be a bad recruiting year, a prize recruit who said he would come to your school and then decided at the last minute to join an arch-rival. Too many good players would be injured in the preseason, or there would be a change in athletic directors, and the new one had a favorite coach whom he hoped to install in what was now his program. In the end, the current head coach would be fired, and the assistant coaches would have to leave with him. Bill Belichick had been born in 1952 in Nashville, when Steve already considered an exceptional coach, tough and smart, original and demanding, way ahead of the curve in the drills he demanded, and, in addition to everything else, an absolutely brilliant scout, was in the process of being fired as an assistant coach at Vanderbilt, even though the team he was part of had done reasonably well. He had been fired, all of the members of the Belichick family later believed, because he and the coaching team he was a part of had not been quite social enough for the genteel world of Vanderbilt football, and there had been a deftly organized campaign against them by one of Nashville's more influential and social sports writers. Thus, Bill Belichick had entered the world rather typically as the son of a lifer. When he was a toddler, his family had already given up the lease on their house and put their furniture in storage, and his father was waiting for word on his next job. The head coach they had followed to Vanderbilt an immensely popular man named Bill Edwards. William Stephen Belichick was named both for Bill Edwards and for his father, was well-connected in the world of coaching and liked by almost everyone, save apparently one or two Nashville sports writers. But it was late in the year and there were not a lot of openings. It was a difficult moment. On Steve's tiny salary, the family had not been able to save any money and they were hunkered down in a house they would soon have to vacate. They had no furniture. Moving boxes filled with their possessions served as their tables and chairs. The phone, which was supposed to be ringing with job offers, did not ring. There was talk that Bill Edwards might be offered a job at North Carolina as an assistant to a man named George Barkley, and that if he were, Steve Belichick might become part of his team. But it was still just talk. Time was running out. Finally, a game plan was decided on, one that Jeanette Belichick helped formulate. They would pile everything they had into the car and drive east. Somewhere along the way, 
they would stop and call the Carolina people. If the job was there, they would continue on to Chapel Hill. If there was no word, they would leave the uncertain world of college coaching, head south, and Steve would try to find a job in Florida, coaching high school football. In Knoxville, not quite halfway to Chapel Hill, the Belichick family pulled up alongside a restaurant, and Steve got out and called from a payphone. The Carolina job was his. So they continued to Chapel Hill, and the idea of coaching high school football was put aside, at least for the moment. The Belichick family loved Chapel Hill, and Steve always regretted that Carolina was not a perennial football power. But to his mind, George Barclay was not that good a coach. It would have been better had Edwards been the coach, he thought. Chapel Hill lasted three years, 1953 to 1955, before the full staff was once again fired. From there, Steve Belichick managed to get the job as an assistant coach at Navy. Bill was three years old when they went to Annapolis. Steve Belichick loved coaching there, loved coaching the midshipmen, and decided he would stay there permanently if he could. He did not long to be a head coach. He had seen how quickly they came and went, even when they were talented, like his friend Bill Edwards. He didn't need the title or the power. He decided everything he needed was right there. A solid program, Navy still had nationally ranked teams in those days, great young men, an attractive community, wonderful colleagues. He was one of those rare Americans who, though ambitious and exceptionally hardworking, knew when he had a deal that suited him and had no urge for greener pastures, which in his shrewd estimate might in fact not be greener. At Chapel Hill, he had become close to the Carolina basketball coach, the legendary Frank McGuire, who had taken a special liking to the Belichick family and especially...